together, the last thing I want to do is to talk to somebody. Just give me a hole in a dark place to crawl into. I have sometimes deliberately crossed the road when fatigued to avoid meeting a friend that I see a quarter of a mile away. I'm glad Jesus is not like me. His last interview was on the cross. His last interview was on the cross. Just prior to a midday midnight. And there's an intimate relationship between that interview and that midnight. Our Lord came at the midnight of the world. Civilizations had come and gone and brought neither happiness nor fulfillment. The philosophies of Plato and Socrates and Epicurus and others have been tried and found wanting. At the time of the event in Bethlehem, all ignorant people thought of all religions as equally true while educated people thought of them as equally false and politicians thought of them as equally useful. Pliny, who was a contemporary of our Lord, wrote this. There's nothing certain, say that nothing certain, and there's no more wretched and yet more arrogant being than man. The best thing that's been given to man amid the many torments of this life is that he can take his life. It was the most pessimistic era of all time. Suicide was pandemic. The method of birth control was infanticide. You exposed your children to the snow and the weather. It was an age of slavery and therefore licentiousness. For wherever there's slavery, there's violence and there's lust. There was a law in the Roman Empire that if one slave attempted the life of his master, all the slaves would die. So it was not unknown for 500 slaves to be crucified at the same time because one slave had attempted the life of his master. Let me read you some of the epitaphs that archaeologists have discovered from the first century. Child, be not overly distressed. No man is immortal. I was not. I was born. I live, I am not, that's all. All we are kept for death, fed like a herd of swine that are butchered without rhyme or reason. Here lie I, Dionysius of Tarsus, 60 years old, unwed, would my father have been the same. The empire had brought peace but no zest. Fourteen out of the first fifteen Roman emperors were homosexuals. It's hard to understand the, the way of thought that was prevailing at that time. The wisest of men, Socrates, had made it part of his business to teach a prostitute how to run her business. Most of the great philosophers, like Plato, etc., were homosexuals. I'm not talking about a tendency which, like all other tendencies, is not sinful in of itself bringing guilt. I'm talking about practice. That was the midnight world, and the poet put it like this. On that hard, 
pagan world, disgust and secret loathing fell. Deep weariness and sated lust had made of life a hell. And then came Jesus at the midnight of the world, for God so loved the world. Then came Jesus. I am come that you might have life, you might have it more abundantly. My peace I give unto you, not as the world give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I give unto you power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you meaning lasting hurt. We need lots of minor hurts along the way. And he taught of God as Father, using the child's term Abba, Daddy. He taught of a God who was a Daddy, a Daddy who attended the funeral of every sparrow and who numbered the hairs of our heads. And suddenly that world was changed. It wasn't long before those that believed in him were being accused of being drunk. They were drunk right enough with joy. But just prior to that came a midnight in the midnight. A midday midnight. Even historians tell us about it. There is a record of a slave galley that was in the Adriatic. The men falling on the oars suddenly paused when at midday the sun disappeared. The darkness seemed as though it could be felt. And out of the darkness came the words, Great Pan, the nature God. Great Pan is dead. But the centre of that darkness was at Jerusalem, the centre of the world. You had to pass through Palestine if you were going down to Egypt or if you're going up to the, uh, up towards the Roman uh, centres of civilization. Jerusalem was the midstream. And I want you to think on that event. Let's go back a little bit before the midday, midnight and survey the scene where there are three lonely crosses on this tiny hill called the place of the skull. I want to suggest to you that it is a microcosm of all existence, just as an atom is a miniature solar system. So the place of the skull is a miniature of all existence. There were all men represented there, old and young and black and white, free and bond, learned and ignorant, sacred and secular. They were all there. The scripture tells us in John 19 that in the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden. It wasn't only the place of a skull, it was the place of a garden. Here were flowers and graves. My friends, that's what life is. It's too bad that in the garden of life we often choose to sit on our little handful of thorns. But the other extreme is to forget that thorns are inevitable. Thorns the size of crosses. You cannot live without Calvaries. The place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. The place of life. The place of death. Crosses are inevitable to all who are born. The only choice is, will we take the one on the left or the one on the right? Will our cross be that of a beast, senseless, hateful, angry? Or will it be like the man with whom Christ had his last interview? A cross that's a prelude to a crown, a cross of salvation, offering the stuff of redemption.
They picture these men hoisted between heaven and earth. Rather interesting because man in the scale of magnitudes is halfway between the atom and the star. But he's a mystery to himself. He knows more about the stars than he does about himself. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I don't wonder what you are. You're the cooling down of gases into incandescent masses. We know what the stars are. What is man? Poised between heaven and earth and in the centre, one called the Son of Man. The only true man that has ever lived a lifetime. The only true man. Adam lived but a short time and became depraved. But here on the centre cross is the revelation of what all men should be. The Son of Man. But there's a mystery here. This man of supreme goodness That hand that's nailed to the cross is the hand that smoothed down the hair of the children on his lap, that broke the bread that the hungry might eat. Those wounded feet are the feet that travelled weary miles to heal the daughter of a heathen woman on the border of Tyre and Sidon. That brow that's crowned shelters the mind that gave the Beatitudes upon the poor and the hungry and the meek, and the merciful. And that side that's ripped open is by a heart that loved all men, good and ill alike, black and white, rich and poor, ignorant and learned. There's a mystery here, and when we look for understanding as to what man is, we find a mystery. We find supreme goodness put to supreme pain, and that gives us a supreme mystery. How can there be a God if that is the penalty of goodness? The cross is a supreme mystery. Look at this microcosm of life. A cavalcade had come out of the city full of buffoonery and joking and jeering and ribaldry. Soon it will go back in reverse and the people will be beating their breasts. Now the earth is still, but soon when he cries out, it is finished. The earth will shake. His groans will split the rocks. And as he drops his head upon his bosom, it will tear the veil of the temple. Oh yes, when we first look at it, the graves are shut. They're sealed, but as he dies, some of them will open and people will come out and go into the holy city and appear unto many. It's a miniature of all time. We come in the cavalcade of life and we jeer and we joke our way through the years. But there is a nemesis. There is a judgment. There is a time when those that have jeered and those that have taken no thought for duty or for gratitude or for service will beat their breasts in horror as did the returning crowd after Calvary. The earth will not always be still as now. It will shake universally, as it shook around the place of the skull. The tombs will not always be sealed as now, and that's good news for some of us. They'll burst open when the crucified returns as the crowned one. So here's a microcosm of all existence. But this strange darkness, what means it that at midday, at 12 o'clock, after our Lord has been exposed for three hours, people know that he's real, that his sufferings are real. He's given his witness. 
On the way to the cross, he'd spoken as a prophet. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. The hour cometh. And those that have never given suck or born children will be called blessed. And men will cry for the mountains and the hills to fall on them. Not to hide them, but to kill them. There was Christ as prophet. If they do these things to a green tree, a green fruitful tree doesn't usually burn. If they do this to me, what will happen to the barren, the barren tree of Israel? That was Christ as prophet. And then as soon as the blood began to spurt on the cross, we see him as priest. Father, forgive them. The text says, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. Then? When? When they crucified him. As soon as the blood spurts, he is interceding. The cross has become an altar and a mercy seat sprinkled with blood. But it's also a throne. That's why he still has his crown. The scripture says they took from him the purple robe. It never says they took from him his crown. It's a throne. It's a tribunal. He divides the world. The scripture says there they crucified Jesus and with him two thieves and Jesus in the midst. Oh yes, he's in the centre because he divides all men according to their relationship to him and his gospel. All of us are on one side of the other. There are only two paths for travellers. It's not true that every road leads home. Only Jesus is the way. Only Jesus. And so we see this altar. We see this mercy seat sprinkled with the blood. We see this throne of the King of Kings. His name is written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. The religious language, the language of law, the language of philosophy, the universal tongues. He's universal King of kings and Lord of lords. And as such, he's the judge of all men and separates all men. And so he has spoken his gospel. And then came down the darkness. What does it mean? This darkness from 12 till 3, as many hours in this terrible darkness as he had been there before the gaze of the rude crowd. What does it mean? In the darkness, he utters his central cry that unlocks the mystery of the darkness and the cross. The central cry of the seven, because you see the cross was not only an altar and a mercy seat and a throne and a judgment bar and a triumphant chariot wherein he overcame and took captive Satan and all his hosts. The cross is also a pulpit from which he speaks seven times. Oh, the wonderful perfections of Jesus. This one against whom seven accusations were made, who passed through four four trials with the religious and then three with the secular, seven trials, utters seven cries on the cross. And the middle one unlocks the mystery of the midday midnight. The middle cry unlocks the mystery of the cross. The middle cry unlocks the mystery of pain and sin and guilt and loss and death. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? All the pains of his flesh, that great heart could stand. But when God forsook him, his heart broke. My God, why hast thou? He'd known what it was to have his countrymen of Galilee rise up and push him to the precipice, to have his countrymen reject him. He knew what it was to have the religious leaders of his faith 
reject him and when he's turned over to the government from whom he expects equality and impartiality, they reject him and then his followers forsake him and one betrays him. Through all that he passes unscathed and as though he is walking on a summer pavement, he can promise eternity in paradise in the midst of crucifixion. But then the note changed. Not just his country people, not just the leaders of his church, not just the government, executives of justice, not just his followers, but now he's God. There's no experience we have through which Jesus didn't pass. There are times when we see in a whirling, chaotic vortex sucking us down to nothingness. No life beyond childhood goes without its Gethsemane. There are times when all the gears are clashing and everything is out of joint and there's no sense in anything and death would be welcome. My friends, there's no wound for which Christ hasn't provided a balm. No pain for which there's no healing salve. He has gone through it all, my friends. He has gone through even dereliction. He has gone through the experience of being forsaken of God himself. For the first time in eternity, Christ is ruptured from his Father in feeling. God was there but covered in the darkness. Christ is not permitted any sensible encouragement, any feelings that God is with him. And when Jesus said why, he did it that you and I might look at the why. What means this cross? Why is supreme goodness put to supreme pain? What means this darkness? My friends, it's very simple. It's very simple. Sin brings separation. Sin brings abandonment. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ is there in your stead. Christ is there in my stead. He tastes the terrors of the second death. He is immersed in the billows of hell. He endures the torments of the damned. That's the meaning of the cross. That's the meaning of the darkness. He asks why, that we might ask why, that we might look at this central saying to find this central truth that alone can make sense of what otherwise would be nonsense. The key to all our pain, to all the meaninglessness and the contradiction of existence, is that there is such a thing as right and wrong. As surely as there's light and darkness, life and death, they're all connected, my friends. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And none can cheat God with impunity. The wages of sin is death. And Christ accepts the wages. He is forsaken that we might never need to be. He takes our place. It tells us in Romans 8, God that spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. God spared him not. He was made a curse for us, it tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Made a curse for us. 
God made him to be sin for us. That's why it was a serpent on that banner staff. A serpent. He was made sin for us. For us. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Don't you love the whosoever's of Scripture? That whosoever. See, we're all in it, my friends. We're not Calvinistic predestinarians. God so loved the world. He died not for our sins only, but for all the world. Whosoever will may come, because behold the Lamb of God. He has taken away the sin of the world. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The whole human race has been reconciled, but the whole human race doesn't know. The barriers are down between God and man. By the sin of one, condemnation came upon all men. But by the righteousness of one, acquittal came upon all men. The whole world has been forgiven its sin, if it will accept it. For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And now we ambassadors for him, saying, Be ye reconciled to God. God is reconciled. Now you be reconciled. However recent your sin, however distant your sin, however terrible my sin, it's all been dealt with, my friends. The only thing that separates me now from God is unbelief. There is more sin, my friend, in a moment's unbelief than in transgression of all the rules of the book. Because every sin can find forgiveness provided unbelief is not cherished. So there is the meaning of, of, of the cross. There's the meaning of the darkness. It tells us many things, of course. It tells us that all lights are dim if Christ doesn't shine. Don't talk to me about Plato and Socrates and Paul Tillich unless you can tell me more about Jesus. All lights are dim when Jesus doesn't shine. There's only darkness if Jesus isn't there, my friends. A church that has everything else but Christ is no real church. And we're not making accusations. We need to look at where we worship. Oh yes, it tells us many things. If Christ is not fully preached, then everything's in darkness. Obscure the cross and you've obscured all truth. Put out this bushel and the house is in darkness. But when he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, with every Eloi, with each term, sunshine was flashed upon the scene and the darkness fled away. Where the word of Christ is, there is light. His word alone can banish the darkness. And so we see our cry, our saviour cry. He doesn't cry against God, but to God. His finite human nature comes in contact with the awful infinite justice at the heart of the universe. But it's a justice that's mixed with love. There's the darkness. There's the midday. Midday, midnight. But now I want to introduce you to that which should never be separated from the midnight. The interview which is found in Luke, the 23rd chapter, the last interview. When Christ spoke to his mother and John, there was no response, perhaps out of a look. But when the thief spoke to Christ, there was a response. Please look at Luke and the 23rd chapter. We're going to look at an interview that pictures prophetically the results of the cross throughout all time. 
We're going to look at an interview that pictures the impact of the message of the cross in all centuries. We should begin the story at 39 of 23, Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, another gospel tells us that they both railed on him to start with. So the man we're going to talk about who saved at the 11th hour is a man who a little while before was cursing his Lord. What tremendous encouragement in this story. Some of us feel our sins are so recent there's no hope for us. This man was cursing Christ a little while before he's promised paradise. You know, Spurgeon protested against those ministers that presented the Gospels like donkeys eating thistles. You know what he meant? A donkey eats thistles very carefully. It can be quite upsetting to a donkey's mouth or stomach. So he eats thistles very carefully. And Spurgeon protested against those ministers that present the Gospel as though it was thistles. He's saying, look, God isn't that careful. He takes a renegade, one of the worst of them, bad up to the last moment, and gives him heaven. Isn't that a risky business? God doesn't care. He's in the business of risk. To encourage us. To encourage us. What could be more encouraging than that? A man that is cursing his Lord. And in the matter of a few hours, is promised paradise. The marvellous grace of God. We need to be careful with the story. Some people seem to think that the essence of the story is that you can be saved at 11.30, 10 minutes to midnight or something. No, my friends, that's not the real point of the story any more than I should say, well, I can be a thief because Christ saved a thief. That would be just as stupid to say he was saved at the eve of midnight, so I can be. You know, a, a bad mind and heart can take the best things and, and turn and pervert them. They can get indigestion on the, on the word of life and break themselves on the rock of ages if you've got a wrong intent. But the important thing about this man isn't that he saved at the eleventh hour. It's true that God records one deathbed repentance, so no one would despair, but only one so no one would presume. It has been truly said many times that those that hope to repent at the eleventh hour will die at 10.30. That's true. But the point of the story isn't that, my friend. The point in this story is the marvel of how this man was converted, the marvel of his faith, and the marvel of the results of his faith. Let's think on them. Now, I would remind you again about that centre cross. If you look at it closely, you'll see it's an inverted sword. The cross was an inverted sword with a heavenly hand on the handle. And it's piercing the earth, which has rebelled against God. And there in great extremity, are three men. That's not a time for interviews. That's not a time for interviews. It's not a time when it's easy to think of something ethereal, abstract, immaterial, yet future. You know, a boil on my neck affects me far more than the death of 120,000 people across the sea somewhere. It's so near, so intimate. But this man, in the pangs of crucifixion, can look to Jesus and see what no one else saw. Please note, this is Christ's last companion on earth and God's gift to Christ to encourage him as he goes down into the shades. This man is an earnest of the millions that will come because of the cross. Well, just think of that situation. 
First of all, he's one of two that curse him. If you're the Christ, save thyself and us. So many people want to rest their faith on miraculous demonstration. My friends, if every sick person could get cured by just a prayer, the church would be flooded with people it doesn't need. What atheist with any sense wouldn't be a Christian if a momentary prayer could banish his cancer or his migraine? Oh, my friends, God is wiser than that. Those that make their faith depend on miraculous demonstration will be deceived. I believe in miraculous healing. God can and does do it, my friends. But he does it as he sees best, not at our demand. But here's a man in terrible pain who at first is railing and cursing, who's suddenly converted. Why? How? Well, he read the little Bible, perhaps, first of all. Jesus, King of the Jews. And he begins to think about it. This man with a crown of thorns who'd had a purple robe back there in the Praetorian guardroom. King, Jesus, the name means saviour. The crowd are saying he saved others. He himself has said it. He saved others. Perhaps he can save me. And then he looks at the face of the man on the centre cross. There's sadness in that face, but also majesty. There's love there. There's sympathy there. There's concern there. And as he looks at that face, and then hears those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Under the ministry of the Spirit of God, the little Bible on the inscription, the Bible in the face of the crucified Saviour, the words preached from that strange pulpit, ministered by the Spirit, create a new creature in the thief on Christ's right. He becomes a new man. And then, my friends, what does he do? He makes open confession. You can't be a Christian without open confession. He makes open confession. He has a concern for others. He declares the sinlessness of Jesus. He doesn't just say, this man hasn't done any wickedness. He said he hasn't done anything amiss. Everything he's done has had perfect wisdom. He rebukes his fellow thief. He discerns in this man in the centre a king who has an invisible kingdom, a kingdom beyond the grave, because it's obvious this man is dying like him. What marvellous faith to perceive a kingdom of the future. And while in the pangs of crucifixion, to think on it. You know, there are two great things that are difficult for the mind. When in pain, to think of a future good thing. That's very difficult. It's, it's praiseworthy to be able to do it. The other thing is, my friends, that when the future is of the opposite nature, by faith to live one day at a time in the present, they're two great secrets. When in pain, to look to the future. It's inevitable we're going to spend our rest of our time there. But the other one is that when the future looks gloomy, to live in the present. This man has the first type of faith. Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. Verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. How quick the reply. Notice as soon as the man is converted, he prays. And God wanted to send someone to Paul, then Saul, the new believer. Oh, Lord, he's a persecutor. Don't send us to him. He's a bad man. 
And the Lord gave a simple answer, three words, behold, he prayeth. You can do all sorts of things for wrong motives. You can pray in public, you can write books, help the old lady across the street. You can do all sorts of wrong motives. Not usual to pray in secret. Not usual, my friend. Prayer is the stamp of the converted. Behold, he prayeth. And look what he paid for. Wiser than me, perhaps wiser than you. He doesn't pray for the ease of his pain. He doesn't pray for deliverance. He prays for the kingdom. Oh, what a marvellous faith has been begotten man. What a sense of priorities he has. He puts the kingdom of God of his pain and temporal deliverance. Challenge to you and me. I'm afraid I too are averse to that. I find myself thinking much about them and thinking much more of the present cross, which is most unchristian. I confess it. But this man is begotten to such faith that he doesn't ask for the temporal deliverance and the ease of his pain. He wants the kingdom of God. What a man is this. So here are three men. The man in the centre has sin on him, but not in him. He's a perfect son of man. Sin is no part of true human nature. In the early hours, I've been listening tape that some dear brother made to me to convince my heresy about the sinlessness of Christ's human nature. And if I have him a simple answer, saying, my brother, you're right, was a true man, altogether man. Brother, sin was no part of true humanity. On that central cross, the Christ who had sin on, not in him. Now on the right is a man who had sin in him, but not on him. Oh, my friends, any Christian that looks at his own heart finds anger, impurity, greed, worry. Oh, my friends, not horrified yet. If you are in your family, the believer who's promised has sin in him, but none. That's the glory of the gospel. You know, I have trouble with some people. I have trouble with their sword. Much trouble with their sword. I find so much in him that's contrary to his Lord. And so constantly there. I find it much easier to preach than to practice. Much, much easier. But praise God, my friend, when we have laid our trembling hand on the Lamb of God, though there is sin in us, there's none on us. None on us. But this other man, he has sin in him and on him. And so now I ask the question, why is it that one is saved and the other lost? Well, here we see the goodness and the severity of God, both. Three young men. Crime is usually the work of young men, not old men. You become nervous as you get older. Here are three young men. Behold, goodness, the severity of God. Why are so young an age? Now, most of you, of course, have heard of Errol Flynn because he was an Australian actor. <laughs> At 50, when they said he had the of an old man of 80. He lived it up. He didn't believe in pie in the sky and you die in those years when he was living it up. The story of dead repentance, whether it's true, I don't know. He lived it up, my friends. He tried to make his pie right there and then. And he had the ones an old man. The cross tells my friends that sin always brings shame. Sin always brings sorrow. God is not indifferent to sin. Even you and I are converted, my friends, and have no on us. God will chastise us for our sins. Every good father does. He'll chastise us without rejecting us. A Christian doesn't think I can sin and get away with it. Now I know the gospel. No, my friends. He will not taste one drop of the wrath of God while he trusts in the love of God, but he will feel the rod of God. Let me read you something. From the most unlikely book, Romans, 
chapter 2. Let me read you something about the goodness and the severity of God. From verse 4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? By your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he'll render to every man according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does it. Glory, honour and peace for everyone that does good. Oh, friends, so necessary to distinguish between root and fruit. Obedience is not the root of salvation. Can be. A man is righteous by faith regardless of his success in the law. Obedience is never the root of salvation, but it is the fruit. It is the fruit. This is Romans. This is Paul. He's talking about obeying. This begins and ends with reference to the obedience of faith. The penitent thief is saved without works. That's a half, my friends. He has a perfect prayer. He looks. His brother sinner. He makes open confession of Christ. He exercises tremendous faith. Oh, yes, he had works, my friend, but they were the fruit. Weren't the root. We still haven't answered our question. Looking at the goodness on the, and the severity of God on the left, why is one saved? Why in our own families are some saved and some lost? In our street, in our church. Because all churches are filled with atheists. You tend to determine atheism by what a person does, not what they say they believe. If we don't make God central, primary, in our choices, if that's not our rule, our habit, our practice, our ambition, we're atheists, whatever we say. God either matters tremendously or he doesn't matter at all. Let God be God. Now, why is one saved and the other lost? Well, look around that cross. Here are lots of religious people. The chief priests are there. Perhaps Caiaphas was there. Lots of religious people. Lost. Lost. Lots of Jews that had Christ ministering there for three and a half years. Lost. And here's a man right next to Jesus who's lost. My friends, proximity is no guarantee of salvation. Judas, look, a little bit away from these three trees, there's another one, just a little bit away. Judas has hung on it, hung himself on it, and fell from the rope till his bowels gushed out. Judas had proximity, but he didn't have salvation. And here's one thief with proximity who has salvation. Here's another thief with proximity who doesn't have it. Proximity is not enough. It's not how much of the word of God I've gone through. It's how much of the word of God has gone through me. Proximity is not enough. It's as simple as this, my friends, when we ask the question, is salvation hard or easy? It's as simple as this. It is hard, terribly hard, those that have no sense of need or those that fill the heart with material trivia. For the preoccupied and the self-righteous, salvation is impossible until God mercifully bursts the bubble by pain. Until suddenly we see our emptiness, our nearness to death, our guilt, and cry out, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Why are so many lost? My friends, because they have it so easy. Is life hard for you? Thank God. 
Full cup, much more dangerous than one that's empty. Prosperity destroys a thousand for every one that pain destroys. And I'm allergic to pain. I confess it freely. I would swim through a sewer to avoid pain. But prosperity is a lot more dangerous, my friends. To think that things are good, to be preoccupied with the temporal and the trivia. What do we read? What do we watch? What do we think about? How do we spend our spare time, our spare money? These are things that reveal us, my friends. The villains of Christ's parables are not very villainous by human standards. They're just preoccupied. Here's a rich man that pulls down his barns and builds greater. Well, that's great. He's a, he's a hard worker. He's a good accountant. Uh, he plans for the future. Look at all these virtues, but he's damned. God says to him, you fool, you fool. The rich man and Lazarus. Why, the rich man wasn't altogether bad. He provided Lazarus with scraps every day. He didn't ignore him. And he goes to hell. The people are invited to the feast. You know, it's not wrong to go and look at the new plot of ground they've bought or be rejoicing the new wife you've acquired or, you know, all their excuses were so very reasonable. How scary. How scary. They're preoccupied. That's exactly it. My friends, is salvation hard or easy? Dead easy if you have a gnawing sense of need that empties you and makes you look at Christ. Easy. You can't be lost while you're looking there trusting. You can never be lost. You may have a thousand failures. Don't misunderstand me when I talk about obedience. None of us are really obedient. We all have so many failures. But a Christian, converted Christian, has his will, his mind, his intent, his love set on glorifying his Lord by obedience despite his failures. And he's accepted despite his failures. That's all the world of difference to a man that flagrantly, willfully, carelessly ignores the word of the Lord. Hard or easy? Depends on whether we've been emptied or not. My friends, salvation is by faith alone. But true faith is like the two hands of a plough. True faith always includes an unfaith. You cannot trust fully in Christ while you're trusting in yourself. True faith always includes penitence. Penitence is self-distrust. I knew a lot more, my friends, 30 years ago than I do now. A lot more. I was much smarter 30 years ago than now and much gooder. You know, the nearer I get to the kingdom, the worse Des Ford obviously is. Yeah. True faith is always accompanied by unfaith. It's like a tree. It goes up and it goes down under the ground. The under the ground bit is you don't trust in your own feelings, your own impulses. My friends, Christ was outside the gate. He was a nonconformist. He was a protester. He was where the refuse was and the lepers were, where they threw the garbage. And a Christian doesn't go by what other people do, the people inside the city. Let them do. What does the Lord want me to do? A Christian has unfaith in human nature, including his own most of all. Fools distrust other people. Wise people distrust themselves. And it was this man who didn't trust himself that said, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. And if we can pray that prayer in sincerity, our Lord says to us this very day, today, he says, you, despite your past, 
your sins, your recent sins, your terrible sins, despite what you've done and what you left undone, verily I say to thee today, to thee, you shall be with me in paradise.